everyone. This is uh, our next to last uh, class in this uh, series of Basics um, Matter. And uh, what we're um, going to do today, uh, what, what we've been saying as we've walked through some of the basics of theology, some of the basics of history, the basics of polity, and we're going to apply that to the particular situation, um, particular um, concern of human sexuality um, today. And uh, try to look at it from those um, three lens best that we can in our um, time together. Let's uh, pray together. Gracious God, again, we give you thanks for this day and this time to gather, for this opportunity to engage around your word, to engage with your, your people, um, and we pray you will lead us into your truth, um, into your joy, um, into your goodness. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, before we uh, go any further, I mentioned it at, at 9 o'clock, but um, there are um, a couple elders uh, who will be in the fireside room today, uh, right now, and at 11. Uh, they'll also be there for 9, 10, and 11 um, at uh, um, the next two Sundays as well. So the first two Sundays in June, particularly to um, discuss the congregational vote that's uh, coming up on June 17th. Um, but uh, so if you want to duck into there, feel free. Um, you can duck in there after the class or anytime the next two Sundays as well. Our elders will be there to um, help inform and uh, let you um, ask questions and address the concerns around the June 17th vote. But for today, as we said, we want to walk through uh, theology, history, and polity applied around human sexuality. Now, first, the uh, first question is, well, why around human sexuality? Why are we going to address that one first? Well, one, it's the topic of the day. Uh, it's uh, on the front pages. Uh, it's uh, on the uh, um, Internet. It's on all kinds of blogs and all kinds of information. It's, uh, there are elections around sexuality, vote, um, votes being taken in states um, uh, around the nation, and we... Uh, um, as a good Reformed theologian, Karl Barth used to say, you, as a Christian, we live our life with the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. And it's the topic of the day. And maybe he would say, if you're around today, the uh, iPad. And, and maybe you just need one iPad, but one page is on the Bible, and one page is on the, the newspaper. Um, second, it's the presenting issue for the church. And um, what exactly do we mean by that when we say it's the presenting issue? Is it, it, it one, it, it demonstrates a disagreement, clearly shows a disagreement within the denomination about how we understand God's design for human sexuality. So it, it clearly shows that within um, the church and reveals some of the underlying differences among folks in the um, denomination. So that's what I mean by, by presenting this. In, in a sense, sort of like the, the tip of the iceberg that presents itself above the water, but is really only 10% of what is below um, the, the water level. And it raises questions for our deliberation concerning the uh, uh, larger question of uh, the best denominational affiliation for CHPC. Just uh, raises questions to... 
um, address and to pursue um, answers. So, we'll uh, walk through this first through the theological um, lens. Let's uh, look at the big picture of Scripture first. And often, we can get so focused on the trees, you know, we don't see the forest. And so let's take a look at the forest first as we understand human sexuality, and particularly as it relates to um, marriage, particularly as it relates to homosexuality. First, there's creation, the very story of creation. Significant how um, God starts His presentation through the scriptures of revealing himself to us. Um, and so it's significant as we look at the created order to see what God's design is um, for us. And uh, uh, we know in Genesis 1, 28, he said male, he created male and female, and the command was be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis 2, 24, the, the created order of a marriage that God's people were to follow of um, leaving and cleaving, male and female coming together as one flesh. And then Jesus quotes the same passage in Mark 10, verse 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one uh, separate. Um, as uh, we uh, stated a couple weeks ago, that God's created order of male and female coming together, then getting married, then moving in together, then having children um, together. And that, that is God's created order of sexuality and His design for the family from the beginning that Jesus um, reiterates uh, with the, the, the Pharisees and that um, Paul also brings out that we'll see in a moment. Now, let's look at the, the big picture of Scripture in the sense of the, the negative sense that there's not a single positive referent to same-gender sexuality in the Scriptures. Um, not an example, uh, not something that would speak positively in any way of Expressing sexuality with same gender being part of God's design or um, order. Um, and there aren't that many passages even that relate to this. Uh, these are pretty much um, all of them. But Leviticus 18, 22, 20, and 13, we'll look at them more specifically in a moment. Uh, Romans 1, and then 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, both have the word sodomite, um, which is the uh, word for um, homosexuality. And uh, the Leviticus passage, chapter 18, verse 22. You shall, um, and, and what I want to do is I'm going to walk through these 
look at these passages. I'm going to then take a look at what, what do folks who are proponents of, of homosexuality, how do they understand these passages? And then we'll uh, address uh, how we, um, uh, how I respond to those um, questions that they raise looking at these passages. Uh, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then Leviticus 20.13, the man lies with a male as with a woman. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, um, hold that passage back. Second passage might raise some questions. Um, you know, well, just how much are we supposed to obey Leviticus 20.13? And... Hold that question, and we'll um, get to that in a moment. Uh, two things I do want you to, to notice, though, but the, the word lie, L-I-E, is in the lie down, and the word male are two words that Paul's going to put together um, in Corinthians and Timothy um, to, in a sense, sort of create his own word, which really was a wordsmith, um, to, um, uh, in a sense, coin a term for um, homosexuality, referring back to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Um, and uh, you may be asking, well, wait, right? Leviticus and 18 and 20 are written in Hebrew, and Paul's reading, uh, writing in Greek. Well, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, um, and that would have been the Old Testament that Paul was using. He used it. So the, two, the Greek words for lie and may are a word he puts together that is then the word that in the New Revised Standard Version is translated sodomite, which is to lie with a male. Romans 1, um, 8, this is 18 through the 22. And um, you know, I want you to catch as you read through Paul's um, writings any relations that you hear to the creation narrative, to Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the, the events of creation. Uh, look at how Paul is uh, relating back um, to that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Anything in there you catch that's relating back to the creation events? Okay. Uh, pretty plain there, ever since the creation of the world. So he's hearkening back there. What else do you think? There's one other uh, one that uh, you'll probably recognize pretty quickly is in the verse 23, the last verse there. What were the things 
created, the um, animate uh, beings that were created. Do you remember the order? There were the birds of the air, there were the four-footed creatures, there were the fish, and there were the humans. I mean, the, the, he's hearkening back to those same things that um, were created in terms of the animate beings that were created in Genesis 1. Uh, and, and the penchant uh, that we humans have to make what is created God instead of keeping the Creator as, as, as God. So, since the beginning of the world, uh, there, were, there were obvious to the things that He has made um, in, the, in the middle of verse 20 and then verse 22. Um, uh, hearkening back to the things that were made uh, to Genesis. Human beings, birds, four-footed animals, and um, reptiles. So, basing this rather strongly on the creation events. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, focusing attention on the Creator and creation and that God is the one to be worshipped. And it's in this now that he speaks of the natural and unnatural. Again, hearkening back to the created order. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind into things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Um, I did include that last part. It really isn't necessarily that pertinent to what's going on. But um, I always do just to say, to to keep a balance in the sense of what um, God has created us to be and do. And that list, um, I think, always includes something for everyone. And so I'm always liking to give gifts that everyone can um, relate to. And, and it helps to keep us humble as we read through God's Word. And remember that our highest call is to have the Word be our authority. And that authority is for us to live according to God's demands. Okay, I'll stop preaching go back to teaching. So, the Romans 1, and Paul hearkening back to Genesis. Jesus hearkening back, as we saw in Mark, and now Paul in um, Romans. And then 1 Corinthians 6, um, again, sort of a list. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 
of God. And again, that word sodomite is the word that also means homosexual. It's, it goes back to Leviticus where it puts those two words together, lie, males lying, meaning really sort of male better, um, B-E-D-D-E-R. Um, and uh, uh, that's what he lists there, and he also does the same um, in First Timothy. Then he continues on, though, again, hearkening back to the, the created order and, and hearkening back, um, uh, in, in this case, uh, sexuality um, in terms of not homosexuality, but um, sexuality in general, heterosexual, um, and in terms of the call um, to being um, faithful in, in marriage as it concerns sexual intercourse with your spouse and no one else. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And, and it is interesting, back to the original question, of, you know, why we talk about sex so much. Well, Paul did as well. I mean, the, the list here of the things that are um, detrimental um, to God's people, a lot have to do um, with sexuality. You know, fornicators, adulterers, male prostitutes, Solomon, four of the first five have to do with sexuality. Um, not only partly because just the, the power, the force of the uh, sexual drive um, within us and the potential for that to lead to destruction. So, um, Paul addresses in particular um, passages as well. Um, the uh, understanding of sexuality to be between um, a male and a female who are in a committed relationship of marriage um, together. And that is there since the, since the beginning. Now, then what are the reasons that folks give to, to validate homosexuality? How do they then understand these um, particular passages? And I think it's important to, to understand that, to try to get a sense of where they're, they're coming from. And, and there are some that, that simply will say, you know, the Bible, they'll be so bold and say, Bible's an outdated book. And it's just, it, it doesn't apply in these situations. It doesn't relate to modern day understanding of uh, sexuality. That's, that's one. That's so clearly opposite to uh, what we've been talking about in terms of our Reformed heritage and theology that the Bible is our authority and the work of God within us that does apply in every um, area of life. So, but those that would hold to that, what do they um, say about um, Leviticus? Well, one, they would say the ceremonial law no longer uh, applies. You know, there are a number of things in the Old Testament that we no longer do. Um, for example, we don't meet on Saturday anymore. And that's you know, the Ten Commandments. That's the Sabbath. It's on, on Saturday. So, um, and there are other things that are mentioned in Leviticus, like having um, uh, one kind of seed in 
a rug that you've been hoeing, or having only one kind of um, thread in your one kind of material in your garments that we um, don't hold to. And as well, we we don't follow the Leviticus 20. If you remember, it was if you can't, and if someone's doing this, they need to be um, given a death penalty. And, uh, nobody is really uh, affirming the, the full um, application of Leviticus 20. So that's what they would say to Leviticus. Now, hold, hold your horses. We'll get to how do we respond to that in, in a minute. The, the Romans and Corinthians passages, the passages of, of Paul, um, uh, how do we then understand um, those? Um, a couple uh, historical examples that folks would want to try to use to explain those um, in a way to say they no longer apply. One is that this is really about temple prostitution. Um, that there was um, prostitution going on around the temple, um, and that so what is being um, uh, talked about here specifically, what is being denied and prohibited, um, are the interactions that folks have with prostitutes that are part of their religious um, ecstasy experience. That's um, one example, the other is, now this is about power relationships. This is, what he's talking about is older men with younger men, or older women with younger women, where they take advantage of those that are younger um, than them. That's um, some of the ways uh, that they would explain those away. And then finally, so this is a justice issue. That, that the point of the gospel, the point of the good news is to include all people. Um, and we don't want to set up rules that would exclude anyone to come um, to Jesus. For example, they used the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. You know, a eunuch was one who was um, separated from God's people because of being a eunuch. And then they... Uh, um, but Philip met with the Ethiopian eunuch and he came to Christ to um, destroy that wall. Is that, uh, and that's an example that would be used positively for saying, well, do the same for those who are um, homosexual. Alright, well, let's uh, look at these then um, and understanding those. One, Leviticus. Um, Old, past, Old Testament passages do have different levels of application today. But we don't just throw them out uh, with bathwater. Um, an example of how the, the New Testament, well, we, we understand the fullness of the Scriptures as progressive revelation. That, that indeed, in the Scriptures, God was continuing to reveal, um, continuing to reveal according to the context of the day, according to what was um, happening in the day, and according to His stage of salvation history. A, a great example is Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Remember that engagement in the Gospel of John? Um, and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and said, Hey, this one was caught in adultery. You need to... Uh, Stoner, right? she needs to be taken out, and uh, the death penalty administered upon her, as the Old Testament says. And, and Jesus, who came in grace and truth, said to them, "Okay, you recall, 
reached down, drew in the sand, said, he who has, the fir- he who has no sin cast the first stone. And everybody's stones dropped. And everybody walked away. And Jesus with the woman said, there's no one here to condemn you. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. So in a way, not then affirming the behavior and in Jesus' brilliance in that moment, still opposing the sin, condemning the sin, but welcoming the sinner in grace and speaking the truth as she then went on to go and sin no more. So an example of how to apply Leviticus 20. That he who is without sin cast the first stone, but the truth of God's word for all of us is to go and sin no more. So it's not a denial in Leviticus of what God has created, what God has called good, and what God has called bad, but does bring that law to bear in the age of Jesus in, in, in truth and grace. So it's an example of and teaching us of what's right and what's wrong in the eyes of God. And so we understand this to be a clear negative statement about homosexuality. Now, the Romans and Corinthians um, passages one prep folks bring historical issues to it, there really doesn't seem to be in the text any way of bringing those historical issues to bear. Um, there's uh, no way uh, that I've heard or seen anyone saying, well, what Paul is talking about here relates to, here's a word that would tie it to the, the, the temple um, prostitution or would, would tie it to the power plays that they had uh, um, that others claim Paul is uh, speaking about. Um, the the uh, issue seems to be more um, that Paul's getting at both in Romans and Corinthians that people simply do what they want to do instead of what God wants them to do. Do you have a question? Say on the Romans, couldn't you uh, interpret it also as Paul is talking about idolatry? The uh-huh. fact that it's more of a, a, a vice list of your examples of how People have turned away from the worship of God or the love of God, and they've engaged in various other things. And so it's more of a passage about idolatry. I, I think you're right. Um, and I think if you look at my notes, granted, sex is not the focus, but I think it is a significant correlate. I mean, the fact that, yeah, I mean, the big picture uh, in all that exists and always is that we worship God. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in the, the big scheme of things. And the fact that he uses um, uh, homosexuality as a, a negative application or example of that, uh, I think speaks negatively toward homosexuality as a viable alternative lifestyle in God's created order. Um, but no, I, think, I think you're right in, in Romans. Um, in, uh, in, in all of these, the point is, is rarely the primary point is sexuality. There is usually a secondary corollary to the big point that he's getting at. Romans is the best um, example of that. 
Um, and then the, the connection of Romans and Corinthians back to Leviticus, as I said before, the word sodomite. And, um, and again, it really sort of means male betters um, together, but uh, uh, relating um, back to Leviticus that Paul puts together to coin that term in his letter to Corinth and the letter to Timothy. And then the understanding of inclusion, the understanding of this being a justice issue. Uh, to call everyone means all sinners are called, but no sinner is called to stay in their sin, just as Jesus did with the, with the woman. Um, all uh, sinners, um, that's almost redundant, isn't it? Um, uh, all are called, and we are all uh, sinners, so this is redundant. Um, but no sinner is called to stay um, in their their sin. That God teaches us what is right and wrong, and we grow in God through um, our obedience. So it's not um, uh, an issue of inclusion. It's an issue of um, righteousness, uh, an issue of pursuing and obeying our Creator. Um, let's look at this. Let's do a little theological to theological historical comparison. Let's look at the ordination of, of women compared to homosexuality from a biblical perspective. There are a couple other things. Yes, David, please. Before you move into there, uh-huh. if we're treating this, we're treating uh, homosexuality like it's a choice. Like somebody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I'm going to be homosexual. Uh-huh. I'm going to live uh-huh. with my girlfriend or I'm going to go out in an adult relationship for some. It's not a choice. Correct. It's a it's a process that they are quote unquote born with. I'm not mm-hmm. saying right or wrong. Right. It's just like I was born heterosexual, some people were born homosexual mm-hmm. or had different intentions. How do you address that with the, with the, uh, the scriptures? Because that's a predominant discussion today. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think the first point that we um, that has to be addressed one is. Do we see homosexuality as a viable alternative lifestyle or not? And if if you do, then you can address that in a different way. But if you don't, then how do you address that particular um, uh, issue of someone who's born with a homosexual orientation? Um, then, it, similar to any other um, challenge, um, I was born with an orientation towards adultery. Um, I was born with an orientation to lust. Um, and, but because of God's grace and a little bit of healthy fear um, and some other things, um, and, and the help of friends and others um, so far, by God's grace, I have not acted on that with my physical body. Um, and uh, for that, I'm grateful. Um, but it's one in which I needed God's people who went before me to tell me, you know, this may be what the, um, some people will teach you, but it's wrong. This is what God designed for your sexuality, uh, to be faithful towards one. Uh, I'm thankful for God's people who surrounded me as friends and who said, hey, call me when you are tempted. Uh, call me when uh, you're, you're about to fall. And that we can be in a relationship with one another um, in, a, in a support group, in a sense, for those who are born uh, 
um, with the, uh, um, uh, the penchant towards um, fornication or adultery. Um, so, I would say that's a parallel to those who are with uh, um, that particular orientation or whatever orientation towards sin would have. That we, that's why we need God's Word. That's why we need one another um, to support and help one another to follow what we truly believe is God's best. Thanks. Right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the behavior, uh, not the orientation um, towards it. Right. That we're uh, addressing. We're all born uh, with a proclivity to sin in all areas, including sexuality. Uh, so we don't take that as an excuse to go out and steal or kill or do other things. How come we can do it? Yeah. They're all sin. Mm-hmm. Right. No, thanks, Lance. And we're all guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and and that's why it goes back to the, the that initial question: Do we understand this to be of God's design, or do we understand it not to be of God's design? And once that decision is made, then we can address it in ways that are with with grace and support and in encouragement. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Um, the sodomite is the word that the translators use to translate Paul's um, term that he coined there. Um, Correct. So, well, I'm saying that that may be what the translators used because that's their understanding of what was prevalent in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not the word that Paul used. And so it's just a, it's a translation decision to use that term. Mm-hmm. Nancy? I didn't want to ask a question, but I, I don't know if it's the right time, but it's a little bit off the subject. But I work with two people, one's a man, one's a woman, lovely people, and you're both gay. If you work with somebody, how would you treat them? I mean, I treat them with kindness, I treat them with love. Is that all? I mean, yeah. is there more to it than yeah. that? I mean, I, um, I think Les's point is, is well taken. We're all sinners. We're all born with a proclivity um, to, to sin. And so no matter um, which one um, we encounter folks, we want to encounter them with that non-judgmental heart of care and to engage with them. And if the opportunity arises to talk, then we'll talk. I mean, um, that, and that is a huge challenge because of the day, too, because... This is quickly becoming the minority voice in the day. And it's hugely controversial and a challenge um, in the midst of it. So, uh, good good question. I don't want to go down that path. It's a great question. So, But let me just stay in the head head part and not talk about the application. Because that's a whole lot harder. Um, (laughs) Easier just to talk about the head part. Um, Well, somebody else has come here and did the other part. Um, but uh, as we, we look at this particular issue of ordination of women and, and homosexuality, um, both had strong social pressure for inclusion. And this happened in the church, and this happened in the church as well with issues like uh, slavery. Yeah? There were social pressures for inclusion as, as well that forced the church to say, let's look at this. Let's look at this again. 
Um, let's continue. As is what we say we are as uh, Presbyterians, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God and the leading of the Spirit. So it's never a bad thing to go back and look at the word. Just to be sure that's what we're going back to do, going back and looking at the, the word. And so we took a reformed perspective of Scripture and compared them both. We, we look at the, the whole scripture, Scriptural account. Like I said before, there's no positive statements around homosexuality. Um, no story or event that particularly relates to those that are um, homosexual. But women in authority, yeah, Old Testament Deborah, New Testament Priscilla, uh, who was a co-worker with Paul. I mean, uh, there are, you, you say, you grow up, as I did, no women ordination, but then you're like, what do you do with Deborah? What do you do with Priscilla? It's enough to say, hmm, there's a biblical example that makes us ask the question that maybe I hadn't looked at before until the social pressure of folks saying, well, what about women in ordained positions? And there's this social pressure, there's the reform perspective of Scripture compared to both. Uh, one, that homosexuality seems that the clear statements in Romans um, are tied to creation, to the created order. Um, Jesus referring back again to Genesis. And um, also in actually Corinthians and Timothy time right back to Leviticus. So these seem to tie closely together and even relate to one another with direct word choices and subjects. The, the women in authority had some confusing statements. Not only are there women in positions of authority, but they're in, uh, as we looked at a couple weeks ago in the Timothy passage, where don't allow women to teach, but I, I want to teach them. Yeah, that, that was the radical statement in Paul's day that we teach women. And um, as well, uh, fully surrounded by um, items that are cultural in their application. Remember the braided hair that we looked at in, in Timothy and that women will be saved through childbirth. There's enough there to say, hmm, what, what exactly is going on? It's just not quite clear. And then we apply it to a certain point with women in authority to say, well, then if, if we look at that and say, well, they shouldn't teach men, well, then by all means they shouldn't teach children. Because men, they ought to be able to figure it out, but children are the most susceptible to deception. So, yeah, it's just like, you know, something's just not working in the passages. And as well, the historical situation that Paul is addressing in Timothy is addressed, particularly in the text, because what had happened was there were some of the, the widows in the midst that were starting to, to feel the freedom they had in Christ, and they had taken it to a point of uh, abusing it, and Paul speaks to that in First and Second Timothy, and that's why in that situation, as he's writing to Timothy, he points out that this is what needs to happen as women are growing into their newfound freedom um, in Christ. So even then, the historical situation is the story of that is in the text. I see it, Ann. Yeah. Just a question on the use of the word clear. Uh-huh. Clear statements. Um, are there not many prominent theologians, Presbyterian also, that um, would just challenge that word clear? Yeah. Okay. There are. Um, in my opinion. 
they seem to be clear, hearkening back um, to, to creation. And then, the, uh, as we look again at the theological historical comparison, then it seems uh, to me uh, ask the question of priority. And there again, there are social pressures that will push us, but do those social pressures align with the scriptures or not? And from my perspective, from the perspective of um, College Hill Presbyterian in our, our history, it, it's that uh, the, the scriptures do not give affirmation to homosexuality, but do to women's ordination for the reasons that I just shared. Now, let's take a look at this now from history. Uh, polity and history of sexuality in the, the PCUSA. Uh, one, it, actually the first um, statement that I, I could find in a resource that I have uh, around this was in 1970. The General Assembly started to discuss this. And in 78, 1978, General Assembly gave a definitive guidance that was then called an authoritative interpretation of 1979. Um, this church was very involved, and Jerry Kirk, who was the pastor here, wrote a book uh, around that time to influence that uh, discussion so that the General Assembly would uh, affirm that um, uh, the prohibition of the ordination of self-affirming, practicing homosexual persons. And that statement was clear to say it was about behavior and not um, orientation as some of you have pointed out already. But this was something where the General Assembly was asked to make an interpretation of the Scriptures. And this was a report was made, presented to the General Assembly, was voted on um, by the General Assembly, and therefore taken as our authoritative interpretation. The, after that... Then, in 1996, um, the General Assembly um, then approved an amendment to the Book of Order to make this particular item clear around the issue of ordination. And it went to, in 96, it was approved by the General Assembly, and then in 97, it was approved by the majority of the Presbyterians, which is how amendments are made to the Book of Order. But you all know that, because you remember all that Sam shared uh, last week. Those who are called to office in the church are to lead a life in obedience to Scripture and in conformity to the historic confessional standards of the church. Among these standards is the requirement to live either in fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness. Persons refusing to repent of any self-acknowledged practice which the confessions call sin shall not be ordained and or installed as deacons, elders, or ministers of the word and sacraments. And that was in the Book of Order um, until 2008 General Assembly and then approved by the Presbyteries um, a replacement statement. That was then um, in the most recent Book of Order as of 2011. Again, it was approved by General Assembly and then approved by a majority of the Presbyteries 
And this was in 2010. And it changed the statement to this one. Standards for ordained service reflect the church's desire to submit joyfully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all aspects of life. The council responsible for ordination and our installation shall examine each candidate's calling, gifts, preparation, and suitability for the responsibilities of ordered ministry. The examination shall include, but not be limited to, a determination of the candidate's ability and commitment to fulfill all requirements as expressed in the constitutional questions for ordination and installation. The council shall be guided by scripture and confessions and applying standards to individual candidates. So, you can see them side by side. The one on your left is the current one, and the one on the right is the one that was there and how they were, um, they were changed. So, important to, to see um, what was removed and what was, what was added so that, as we talked a little bit uh, last week, uh, this opened the door that some have walked through in terms of um, allowing for those in the church who so interpret or so desire um, to see homosexuality as a viable alternative lifestyle to then allow that ordination. Yes, David? When people write laws, there's an intent behind writing laws and changing the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it was obviously, I want to say that let you consider what you're going to say. What is the intent between writing the law this way in 2010 versus the other one? taking out the uh, fidelity in marriage and chastity or the singleness to be more inclusive or was the intent of the door to allow all the local church to make the determination versus the, the way it was there with somebody should be ordained as a right. sexual or a practicing adulterer or I don't you know, whatever it uh-huh. is. Right. Um, uh, to ask the question again, the question is, what is the intent of the change? Um, why was this change made? Um, and it was to then allow for local interpretation, um, particularly around the issue of homosexuality and ordination uh, in local churches and in presbyteries. For it's local churches that ordain and install officers in the church, it's presbyteries that ordain and install um, ministers uh, or teaching elders. Um, and so it was to allow that local interpretation and that particular issue, particularly, specifically, um, uh, that uh, hard to gauge intent, but that certainly is what has happened in uh, a number of presbyteries um, since this uh, approval. Uh-huh. What does that do to the connectional aspects of the Presbyterian churches? It. Um, it, it allows for interpretation in local uh, arenas and for then um, how that exactly would work because somebody might be ordained in one presbytery but another presbytery wouldn't. Uh, I don't know because we, we're not there yet. But that's a good, and that's part of being connected as a church. Um, and the same could even be said of elders um, that you know, as they go to church. Now, this is uh, just the, the closing thing then. Just looking at that, what questions does this raise within me as I consider this theologically and consider this history? How do we as a church handle different interpretive schemes of the scriptures? 
Yeah. How do we? This is a little bit what you're sort of saying, Elaine and, and David. You're you're asking, well, how do we address this when we have such different interpretations of such significant issues in uh, the Scripture? Uh, what does the authority of Scripture mean? And it pushes that question before us. You know, are are we enough on the same um, playing field to ask? even that question, or to talk about authority of Scripture with, with meaning. And what do we do in different parts of the church have such different interpretation? How is the overall mission of the church hampered? Is it? Um, some examples, you know, with these kinds of disagreements, how do we plant new churches together? How, how do we agree and affirm? Do we just say, well... Which interpretation are we going to take of this particular significant issue in planting new churches and continuing in mission together? Are we going to avoid it? Or how are we going to address um, that uh, together? Yes, yes. I have to drop back one. Uh-huh. I fail to see how the latter interpretation changes the form. It doesn't refer specifically to it, unless it does in the book of order. You mean in terms of the Book of Order? In terms of the change in the ordination standards? That's that's correct. It doesn't change it. So both apply. um, No, they don't. Why not? That's my question. Well, and that um, because there are presbyteries and churches that hold to. Um, homosexuality being a viable alternative lifestyle. Yeah, but it's the words recorded in the Holy Word that govern our life. Correct. Those words and those two are not mutually exclusive. But one has been removed oh, and another has been replaced. Oh, yes, sorry. Been yes, yes, I'm sorry. So GA it replaced it. Out. Took it out. Yes, right. The in so terms of. Yes, in terms of, I'm sorry, I didn't get your question, Les. Um, they replaced one another. Not, they're not in there side by side. One replaced the other. Sorry if I was confused on that. Thank you. Good question. But in the book of order, there's no place that it affirms coordination of somebody who's a homosexual. Correct. Correct. That's correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it also said it would be done in accordance with scriptural standards. Yes. How do we get around that? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, uh, again, goes back to sort of these questions when there are different interpretations on those particular significant issues as a church together. Beth? So you're talking about these questions and how we handle different interpretative schemes of scripture, etc. This might be too big of a question for now, but I'm wondering if those who intend to um, embrace homosexuality as a viable lifestyle and not see scripture Are there other parts of Scripture or other estimations of Scripture in which we would differ drastically? Do you understand my question? Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's my last question. What other areas of theological disagreement exist? Um, I think that's what you're... Okay. See, we're on the same wavelength that. That's sort of scary, huh? <laughs> the world better watch out. Um, 
the, uh, yeah, and what other areas of theological disagreement exist. This, like I said earlier, this is sort of the presenting issue. It's the hot issue uh, around, but is it revealing other areas for us to, to try to understand and explore as it comes to us fulfilling the mission of the church um, and God's mission um, for us? Yes. It seems to me that once you tear down Scripture in terms of the interpretation of homosexuality, You've opened the field to anything that society at the time thinks is acceptable. Drugs might be one example of that. Might be. Yeah. Uh, there are others. And Les is saying, you know, as you you open this uh, this up, then it opens up to other areas. Sort of like what David was saying earlier. You know, what exactly was the intent here? Was it just to open it up to, uh, in a sense, Katie bar the door, or? Um, does, it, does it, even if that's not the intent, is that the direction? Yes. Somebody else is, yeah, okay. Um, and, and so I bring these uh, questions for us to address next week. Next week we had a few questions that were answered that were part of our questions that you've been asking during the course of the time that we're going to uh, address next week. Um, in the, the class, and then we're going to review um, as well the reconciliation dismissal policy of the Presbyterian of Cincinnati. That the session has said um, uh, we need a congregational vote to decide if we want to enter into uh, a relationship, a covenant relationship with the Presbytery to discern together how we best relate um, to the, the Presbytery. Yes? Just ask is, is it by giving that particular um, interpretation to the local churches that they said um, they sort of uh, then rendered themselves useless or unnecessary? I, I would say on that particular issue, yes. But there are there are other ones, whether we agree or not, like missions and other things where they are at work and we are working together um, with them. So, but on on that particular issue. That has been given term, interpretation to But then on that by. kind of an issue, isn't that more of a convenience on a very material level that it's easier to service missions and so forth if we pool our resources, but when it comes to theology and how we view scripture and the world, it's up to the individual groups. You, you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying, right. right. So again, they, they've lowered their... The her point is that well, in, in some of those things, in terms of mission and ministry, it's a, a place to be a, a clearinghouse um, to, in a sense, uh, achieve an economy of scale. You know that we can do this together and, and accomplish more. But in terms of this particular theological issue and maybe others, that we've um, just sort of pushed that to the side and no longer are having authoritative interpretations around that, or and maybe 
other things also. It's a good point. Um, so, June's... Oh, I was going to point out that I mean, Sam last week brought up the idea of a uh, presbytery set up similar to the U.S. government, and I would just argue that it's a, it's a federal system, and the idea being that there are certain things that the federal level does, so there are certain things that PCUS does, there are certain things that a local presbytery group does, and then there are certain things that an individual church does, and all of those work like a federal, state, local system, and then I don't think any which one if a local church makes a decision, I don't think that necessarily has to challenge PCUS's authority on many other issues. It just kind of, we all work together. Yeah. yeah. So that that has been, um, so what has happened is that that was under the national, this particular issue was under the national, and now it has been given to the more local setting, the presbytery and the local church. But what is theology and how we Great question. You guys have a great conversation. Thanks for letting us participate with you. And I'm going to uh, uh, say we'll continue that conversation. And that's exactly exactly the kind of questions that we need to continue to explore as we take the next steps of discerning what is the best denominational affiliation. How do we answer those? How do we uh, live together? best to fulfill the mission of God with different interpretations. And I will say this about the reconciliation and dismissal policy. Its intent is to be a peaceful way of exploring that very question for congregations. That is the intent that it's brought to us for. A peaceful way of exploring that. And I applaud great comments and questions and thoughts that were... uh, um, that uh, were done very, uh, very decently and in order. Um, so to be uh, applauded. Um, yes, Barry. I apologize for not having been here, and I didn't hear your whole conversation. But in light of, I was over in the little discussion 